Chapter Nine of Molly Brown's Junior Days by Nell Speed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Grave Diggers. Three times during the night, Molly and Nance crept into Judy's room and looked at her anxiously. She seemed to be sleeping heavily, but she tossed about the bed with feverish restlessness, and her forehead was burning hot. Early in the morning the faithful friends were up again, tipping about like two wraiths of the dawn in their trailing dressing gowns. "'I'll bathe her face and hands before she takes any tea,' said Molly. "'She's awake. I saw her open her eyes when I peeped in just now.' Judy was awake and sitting bolt upright when they presently entered with the basin and towels. There was a strange look in her eyes. Molly remembered to have seen it before when Judy was in the grip of the wander thirst. "'Here you are, sweet spirits of nitre,' she cried in a hoarse, excited voice. "'Knowest thou the land of sweet spirits of nitre?' she began singing. "'Knowest thou the sweet spirits? They are tall, slender, gray ladies done in long, curving lines like that.' She illustrated her ideas of these strange beings by sketching a picture on an imaginary canvas. "'They lean against slim trees.' They have soft musical voices and speak gently because they are sweet. You see? And the land of nitre, what of it? It is a land of gray mists always in twilight, and the sweet spirits who live in it are shadows. It is a sad land, but it is still and quiet, and there are cool fountains everywhere. Sweet spirit, woods give me to drink of thy cup? Molly and Nance laughed. They knew that Judy was delirious, but it was impossible not to laugh over her strange poetic illusion regarding sweet spirits of niter. Setting down the basin and towel, they retreated to the next room. We'd better make her a cup of beef tea as quickly as we can, said Nance. That will quench her thirst and nourish her at the same time. Good heavens, Molly, what shall we do if she begins to talk about the slipper and the lake? I don't know, replied Molly, lighting the alcohol lamp, while Nance found the jar of beef extract. I wish you hadn't given her so much physic, Nance. Molly had a deep-rooted objection to medicine, while Nance, on the other hand, was a firm believer in old-fashioned remedies. Her stomach was in no condition for all that stuff. It was utterly upset. Her gastric juices had been lashed into a storm and hadn't had time to subside. Nance smiled at Molly's ignorance. You are getting the emotions and the stomach mixed, Molly, dear. Now, Molly had her own ideas on this subject, but it was vain to argue with her friend, the actual proprietor of a real medicine chest marked Household Remedies, which contained more than a dozen files of physics. Judy was, in fact, paying the penalty for her mental storm when, on the night of the play, she had run through the whole scale of emotions, beginning with stage fright and an awful fear, and passing into mortification, disappointment, rage, remorse, and finally sorrow, or it might be called self-pity, which inspired her to launch a canoe and paddle into the middle of the lake at midnight. It will never be known how near she came to jumping into the lake. It is difficult to reckon with an unrestrained, hypersensitive nature like hers, always up in the heights or down in the depths, sometimes capable of splendid acts of generosity and unselfishness, but capable also of inflicting cruel punishments for imagined offenses. Nance was for more medicine. Suppose I give her a big dose of castor oil, Molly, she suggested while she stirred the tea. She'd better take it before she drinks this. 
goodness nance you'll kill her exclaimed molly horrified don't you see that it is entirely a mental thing with judy what she needs is absolute quiet and the quinine has probably excited her and made her delirious she doesn't need things to stimulate her she's almost effervescent in her normal condition anyhow castor oil isn't a stimulant child perhaps not but she'd better not be upset any more and in the end molly had her way returning in a few moments to bathe judy's face she found the sick girl half out of bed get back into bed judy she said firmly you're to have a nice quiet day in here and no one to bother you but the slipper i'm looking for the other slipper began judy weeping oh dear i must find the slipper nance molly the slipper have you seen the slipper the old oaken slipper the iron-bound slipper that hangs in the well if it's in the well now drop it to the bottom i hope it's a deep well the deepest well in well county it was unkind to laugh but molly could not keep her countenance i might have known she thought that judy could be more delirious than anybody in the world judy submitted to having her face bathed and drank the beef tea without a murmur she appeared greatly refreshed and quieted and said a few rational words about having had bad dreams it was sunday morning frosty and bright the bell of the catholic church in the village called devotees to early mass it rang out joyfully and persuasively reiterating its message to unbelievers it was a cheerful sound and in spite of judy's troubles they felt comforted the steam heat began its pleasant maintenance in the pipes the kettle on the alcohol stove hummed busily molly began to make preparations for breakfast although she was not self-indulgent discomfort was never an acceptable state to her get your bath nance she ordered and then you can come back and make the toast while i take mine nance departed for the bathrooms with soap and towels while molly busied herself spreading a lunchcloth on one of the study tables and placing a blue china bowl full of oranges in the center then she carefully extracted four eggs from a paper bag in a box on the outer window ledge cut four thin even slices of bread to be inserted in judy's patent electric toaster and at intervals poured boiling water through the dripper into the coffee-pot if i were at home this morning she said i would be eating hot waffles and kidney hash suddenly she looked up judy was standing in the doorway molly she said i want my slipper molly took her hand and gently led her back to bed judy would you like a cup of delicious strong hot coffee she asked endeavoring to divert judy's quinine charged senses very much but the slipper judy began to whimper like a child molly hurried into the next room found one of nance's slippers and gravely handed it to judy who grasped it carefully with both hands as if it were something very precious and brittle when i gave her your slipper nance i felt something like the old witch who had kidnapped the queen's infant and put a changeling in its place molly observed later in telling about this incident to nance but there is nothing to do but humor her i suppose until the influence of the quinine wears off where has she got it now asked nance ignoring molly's allusions to quinine what the changeling slipper under her pillow nance laughed i'm thinking molly she remarked that today would be an excellent time to get rid of that other slipper i don't feel as if i could sleep comfortably another night in these rooms with the guilty thing around until we dig a hole and bury it deep we shall never have any peace of mind 
Molly was carefully peeling the shell from the end of an egg. Do you think we could leave her alone this afternoon? she asked. How long does quinine continue its ravages? Oh, not long, answered Nance in a most matter-of-fact voice. She's such a sensitive subject. That is the trouble. Quinine doesn't usually make people take on so. I never met anyone so excitable and high-strung as Judy. She gets her nerves tuned up to such a high pitch sometimes that I wonder they don't snap in two. Nance, don't you think we ought to confess the whole thing to Miss Walker? Do you think Judy would ever forgive us if we did? Molly sighed. I'm afraid not, she said. Confessing would involve so much. We would have to go back so far to the original cause, those wretched Shakespeareans. It would be pretty hard on poor old Judy. But the slipper, Nance, it's such a ridiculous thing, our hiding that slipper. Where shall we hide it? We must dig a grave and bury it, said Nance, and we must do it this afternoon and get the thing off our minds. Then all evidence will be destroyed and there will be no possible way of finding out about Judy. You have forgotten about the visitor to our room in the night. Yes, admitted Nance. There is that visitor. Who was she? What did she want? You haven't missed anything, have you? No, replied Molly. I have nothing valuable enough to steal except old Martin Luther, and he's quite safe. She reached for the china pig on the bookshelves and shook him carefully. His interior gave out a musical jingle. Clothed and fed and comforted, the two girls leaned back in their Morris chairs with extra cups of coffee resting on the chair arms to consider the question of Judy's slipper. At last they came to a mutual agreement. Otoyo, the safest, discreetest, and least inquisitive of their friends, was to be taken partly into their confidence and left to look after Judy while they went on their mysterious errand. Otoyo, who had the racial peculiarity of the Japanese of never being surprised at anything, accepted this position of trust without a comment. Few students took Sunday morning walks at Wellington, and therefore morning was the safest time for the expedition. Judy, reinforced with a soft-boiled egg and a cup of coffee, appeared perfectly rational and quiet. She surrendered the slipper without a murmur, and turning over on her side, dropped off to sleep. A not-at-home sign was hung on the door, and Atoya was cautioned not to let anyone into Judy's room. She was to say to all callers that Judy had a headache and was asleep. Dressed for a tramp, with Judy's slipper in one of the deep pockets of Nance's ulster, and a knife fork and tablespoon for digging purposes in the other, the two girls presently left Otoyo on the floor immersed in study. They had scarcely closed the door when Judy called from the next room. Bring me that slipper, Otoyo. And the little Japanese, with a puzzled look on her face, obeyed. As they hastened down the corridor, hoping devoutly not to meet intimate friends, Molly and Nance were stopped by the irrepressible Minerva Higgins. Isn't this a stroke of luck, she exclaimed. You are going for a walk, and so am I. I was just on the lookout for somebody. Girls here are so industrious Sunday mornings, I can never get anyone to go walking until afternoon. Molly was silent. At that moment she yearned for the courage of Nance, who, with the word, could scatter Minerva's cheeky assurance like chaff before the wind. It's a lack of character, I suppose, she thought disconsolately. But I couldn't crush a fly, much less that presumptuous little freshman. She stood back, therefore, and let Nance have a clear field for the struggle. You were very kind to offer us your company, Miss Higgins, but we must beg to be excused today, said Nance calmly. I call that a nice Sunday morning Christian spirit, cried Minerva with an angry flash in her small pig-like eyes. 
no no minerva put in molly gently you must not think that way about it nance and i have some important business to discuss that's all you mustn't imagine it's unkind when older girls turn you down sometimes you know it isn't customary here for a freshman to invite herself to join an older girl i believe it isn't customary in any college don't be angry please hidden under layers of vanity selfishness and stupid assurance was minerva's better self which molly hoped to reach and some day she would break through the crust but not this morning don't tell me anything about upper-class girls conceited snobs i know all about them exclaimed minerva angrily as she marched down the corridor in a high state of rage don't bother about her she's a hopeless case just as margaret said remarked nance once off the campus they followed the path along the lake and turned their faces toward roundhead as being the spot most apt to be deserted at that hour in the morning it was not long before they were climbing the steep hill where shall we lay it to rest poor weary little soul asked nance laughing let's dig the grave on the exmoor side answered molly behind one of those big rocks is a good spot we'll be hidden from sight and the ground is softer there talking and giggling because after all they were entirely innocent of any wrongdoing they set to work to dig a small grave for judy slipper when the earth casts up its dead on the day of judgment nance do you suppose the slipper will seek its mate i hope it won't seek it any sooner answered nance dryly at last the grave was ready they laid the slipper in the hole carefully covered it with earth and concealed all evidences of recent disturbance with bits of grass and splinters of rock then molly leaning against the side of the boulder and clasping her hands remarked let this be its epitaph under the wide and starry sky dig the grave and let me die glad did i live and gladly die and i laid me down with a will this be the verse she grave for me here he lies where he longed to be home as the sailor home from the sea and the hunter home from the hill scarcely had the last words died on her lips when nance gave a low horrified exclamation molly glanced up quickly just above them in the shadow of another big rock stood professor green in his old gray suit so still was he that he might have been a part of the geological formation of the hill planted there centuries ago molly felt the hot blood mount to her face how long had he been there how much had he seen what did he think forcing its way through all these wild speculations came another thought there was a brown coffee stain on one of his trouser legs she tried to speak but the words refused to come and before she could get herself in hand the professor coldly lifted his hat and walked away. In his glance, she read disappointment as plainly as if it had been written across his brow in letters of fire. Oh, Nance, she cried and burst into tears. He won't tell, even if he has seen, Nance reassured her. Don't mind, Molly, dear. Come along. I'm not afraid. It's not that. It's not that, sobbed Molly. But then, of course, Nance wouldn't understand what it really was, because she hardly understood it herself. He believed, of course, that she had gone rowing with some Exmoor boys after ten o'clock. He had heard the story of the slipper. Everybody had heard it. It was the talk of college. For a moment, Molly felt a wave of resentment against Judy. Then her anger shifted to Professor Green. At least he might have given us a chance to explain, she exclaimed as she followed Nance along the lake path back to the campus. 
as soon as they entered the room a little while later they saw by otoyo's face that something had happened what is it they demanded uneasily oh ejaculated otoyo raising both hands with an eloquent gesture it was that terrible miss higgins you had but scarcely departing gone when there came to the door a rap 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 so i thought it was you returning and when i opened she pushed her way in so otoyo gave an imitation of minerva forcing her way into the sitting-room she say i wish to see miss keen on a particular business i say miss keen has a sickness to her head she say move away little yellow peril don't interfere with me i wish to inquire after her health then she made great endeavors to remove me from the door and what did you do otoyo they asked anxiously otoyo's face took on an expression half humorous and half deprecating it will not make you angry with little japanese girl no of course not child i employ jujitsu the girls both laughed and otoyo relieved joined in the merriment she received no bruises but she received a shock because it arrived so suddenly you see so she quietly walk away and say no more you adorable little japanese girl cried molly embracing her nance opened the door and peeped into judy's room she was sleeping quietly the slipper clasped in both hands end of chapter nine recording by debbie r baker robinson